Our scripture lesson today uh, is in Acts chapter 13. We are going through the book of Acts. Uh, If you start at the book of Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes to the church, and now that same Spirit is moving the church from Jerusalem out into the world through the Apostle Paul. Let's share in God's good word together. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps no person on earth had a more difficult time or more difficult transition in following Jesus than Paul. Saul of Tarsus. His life was really 180 degrees this way and then turned completely upside down by Jesus in the middle of his life. If you're joining us for the first time, we invite you to pull out your sermon notes and um, we'll catch up uh, real quickly. We began this series a few weeks ago uh, and as a way of introduction, uh, who is this Saul? Who is this person who wrote the majority of the New Testament? Who is it this person that that began um, the church outside of Jerusalem? Who is this man Saul of Tarsus? Well, Saul, whose Roman name was Paul, was raised both in a devout Jewish home and in a wealthy Roman family business. Uh, It's said that probably less than 10% of the extended Roman Empire had Roman citizens. Uh, Less than 10% of the population were Roman citizens. So what we think we know about Paul's family is that they were very wealthy or certainly had high status in the community, uh, which would have granted them citizenship. They were business owners, tent makers. And so Paul, as a young boy, would have been um, raised in the faith. And so he would know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy cold. He would have grown up. Um, learning the scriptures uh, by memory. Uh, And then at about age 12 uh, to 14, he would go down to Jerusalem and begin um, his more formal training to be a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, a lawyer in in these days. So for us, we don't have separation of church. We do have separation of church and state. They did not. So the religious law was the law of the land as they knew it uh, in terms of Judaism. And so Paul knew that. He was also a Roman citizen, so he also knew uh, the laws and customs of the occupying force of Rome in that region. And and God's going to use all of that uh, for a unique mission and journey uh, in Paul's life. And so Paul goes from Tarsus to Jerusalem to be trained in Jewish law. and, And there he learns everything he's supposed to learn, except he becomes a persecutor of the early followers of Jesus. And you might think to yourself, well, well, how can this be? Why would he do that if he knew the law forwards and backwards? Well, friends, his training would include the Shema, things that say um, the Lord your God is one, right? How many gods are there? Just one. Uh, and you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. This is what Paul would know. And then there is this man named Jesus who comes out of a tiny little nowhere town called Nazareth, and he claims to be God. Now, for the devout Jews, you couldn't even say the name God, much less write it. Uh, and you certainly couldn't ever claim to be God himself. And so um, Paul, uh, Saul, would know um, everything about Judaism. He's actually named after the first king of Israel, Saul. Um, and so you don't get more Jewish than Saul of Tarsus. And one of the things that he would have grown up knowing is that one of the primary figures in Judaism was Moses. He was, Moses is the one that frees uh, the Jews, the Israelites, from the Egyptians and takes them out. And, and, and Moses' first encounter with God, 
uh, as he understands it, in the burning bush. Uh, Moses says uh, to the Lord, what is your name? And the voice out of the bush says back t- to Moses, no, 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 no. I'm not, you don't get to know my name. Because it was thought then as it is now that if you had someone's name, you had some power over them. And so the voice comes to Moses and says to Moses, I am that I am. I will be who I will be. I will become who I will become. I am is the answer. And that's God's name. Uh, it's, it's written down uh, Yahweh. But it is I am is the answer. Now, Paul then is going to hear about this uh, young man, this 30-something from Nazareth who goes in Jerusalem. And they say, do you really mean that you're the Messiah? Are, are you really the Messiah? And what does Jesus answer them? I am. And that's all they needed. They tore their coats because this person from this nowhere town was claiming God's name for himself and they would not have it and they killed him for it and Saul was happy about that. He knew exactly they had to stamp out that heresy. It could not go any further and anybody who perpetuated that myth, that heresy, that lie had to be snuffed out and that's what Saul was about. He had spent his whole life training to do exactly that. And so he is on his way to Damascus um, to go up into what is now Syria to go stamp out. He had heard that there were followers of Jesus, followers of the way, continuing this story, and he was going to go take them and, and lock them up and, and in chains and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. That's what he intended to do until he met Jesus face to face. And, of course, it changes everything. Saul encounters Jesus on his way to Damascus to do what he was trained to do, and Jesus through a blinding light, some people think it was lightning, says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, not understanding what's going on at all, he's blind, uh, blinded at this point for three days. And he says, who are you, Lord? And the voice from heaven says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Well, can you imagine that for 20 years, Paul's probably 20 to 25 at this time. His entire life, his entire upbringing, his entire trajectory, I mean, he was on the fast track to do exactly what he planned to do, and now all of it is gone. It's over. As, life as he knew it is upside down because the very thing he had given his life to is the very thing that Jesus has now blown up. And so he has a big problem on his hands, and he doesn't eat or drink for three days until he regains his sight through a man named Ananias. So I want to show you um, on the map kind of how this, how this works out. So Jerusalem is down here. This is Israel. Whoop, there it is. Right there. And um, Paul is going up to Damascus in Syria here. And it's on this road up to Damascus that this happens. Uh, and then what happened? And, and Paul is from Tarsus. This is where he grew up, up here as a Roman province. He comes down to Jerusalem uh, for school Uh, finishes school and is on his way on the fast track of his career to stamp out any sense of Christianity. They wouldn't have even been called Christians yet this so early on. This is really a sect within Judaism, uh, and they saw this as a heretical sect uh, that they had to stamp out. And so what does Paul do uh, from Damascus, having this, you know, wonderful, crazy, life-changing experience? Uh, He retreats to the desert for three years. He doesn't know what to do. Uh, his life is upside down. He is beside himself. Everything that he has ever learned or thought or trained. And he was always the smartest guy in the room. I mean, this, he, he was the guy. And now it's all over. So he basically pouts for three years, kind of. And then he does what a lot of 25-year-olds do. They move home. 
They, they go back to mom and dad. Uh, he had a trajectory. He had a degree. Uh, he had a plan. And that all completely got blown up. And so he goes home to Tarsus with mom and dad. Because mom and dad are doing well. Mom and dad have a tent making business. Uh, they're Roman citizens. Uh, they're doing awesome. And so he goes back to Tarsus up to the north in the Roman province. It's all he knows to do. And, and here's the problem. Because Saul was at the stoning of Stephen, because Saul was such a persecutor uh, of the followers of Jesus, none of the disciples trusted him. It would take another man by the name of Barnabas, the son of encouragement, to go up to uh, Tarsus and and say to Saul, Saul, you have a call on your life. You know that. I know that. And and Saul says, but nobody will listen to me. I I mean, every time I try to to have an audience with Peter or any of the disciples, uh, they're afraid of me. They won't even talk to me. And Barnabas says, hold on, I'll... Come with me. We're going to go back down to Jerusalem, uh, and I'm going to introduce you to them. I'll vouch for you um, because you're changed. Life is different now that you've met Jesus. It's going to be okay. God has things for us to do. And so Barnabas goes up to Tarsus. He gets Paul from his mom and dad's house up here, and he brings him back down to Jerusalem, and he introduces him to the disciples. And this begins his ministry. And, and, and they, they overcome uh, many of these really horrible things that have happened in Saul's past in order to begin to work with the disciples to take the message of Jesus all around the world. And so that was week one. Now, um, this has all happened in familiar territory uh, where Paul has been living and working and serving, and that's a great place to begin your ministry. But then God calls Saul beyond the familiar, beyond what he has known. And so, if you're following along, we're at point one. Acts 13 says it like this. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, who? Barnabas and Saul. Isn't that interesting? You see, Luke is writing, uh, Luke is the writer of both Luke and the book of Acts, both. And, and what, we're, what we see here is nobody trusted Saul yet. They trusted Barnabas. Notice that it's not Paul and his colleagues. I mean, this is the Paul that wrote two-thirds of the, of the New Testament, Right? But, but not here. Nobody trusts him yet. It's Barnabas who they trust and Saul. Saul can go along, but really they're sending Barnabas and they hope Saul doesn't screw it up. I mean, that's, that's really the deal. So Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I've called them, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Uh, this is what the early church did. This is what um, Judaism would do. You would lay hands and, and pray for God's spirit to go with you. It's something we still do today. We'll do that later in this service. Uh, if we have people that we love. As they go to other places, God calls them to other places. Uh, we send them off with, with prayer and laying on of hands to bless them. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Now, we should pay attention here because a synagogue is a place where the law is taught. Those first five books of the Torah. If you know them, say them with me again. They are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They would be teaching this, and they would not only be teaching the law, but they would also be teaching their interpretations of the law. And this is, Paul knew how to do this forwards and backwards. A synagogue could be built in any city that had 10 or more married Jewish men in them. Now again, they had polygamy at that time, so a a Jewish man who was married might have 10 wives. Uh, And so with with 10 men, with 10 wives, you had a church of 100, uh, or synagogue of 100. So uh, it, it, it's not, it doesn't correlate the way it does today for us, um, but that's, that's the way that could be. And so the synagogue would be a place of teaching. Uh, and so this is where they would go. Now, notice that this is pretty dangerous business, because Paul is going into a synagogue to who? The synagogue of the Jews. These aren't Christians, friends. These aren't people who believe in Jesus. These are people who think Jesus is a heretic. People who think Jesus is dead and should be dead. 
uh, because he's claiming God's name. And this is the very place, this point of conflict that Paul is going to. Uh, and he begins to teach. And so Barnabas and Paul and John Mark, they board a boat in Seleucia and they travel 1,580 miles. And this is going to take them a while, probably six months to a year. Uh, and, you know, we can, again, just kind of read over these places. Anybody know how far it is between Oklahoma City and New York City? 1,327 miles. Anybody know how far it is from here to Los Angeles? 1,329 miles. So you notice that what Paul is doing is going beyond New York City. He's going beyond L.A., and he's doing it by foot, or he's doing it by a small boat. I don't think Carnival cruise ships were around yet. It's not that kind of boat, right? And so this is a huge, huge thing that he's doing. Uh, It takes great courage. It is quite dangerous what God is calling him to. And Barnabas and Saul and John Mark, this is where they go. So the first stop, friends, was Cyprus. And then they're going to go on to Perga, uh, and then they're going to ascend on up to the Pisidian Antioch. And so I want to show you what Cyprus looks like. It's beautiful. Uh, I, I would like to go to Cyprus. I mean, that's a good place to go if you've got to go, but you're not walking it. You've got to get on a boat uh, that, that may or may not be seaworthy. Uh, and if you read uh, much of Paul's works, he shipwrecked a lot uh, because this is first century shipbuilding, uh, and they're going to places like Cyprus. And then from Cyprus, uh, they're, so Cyprus is here. All right, Jerusalem's going to be over here. They're going to sail to Cyprus. They're going to sail over here to Perga. And then they're going to begin a 5,000-foot ascent from Perga up to Pisidian Antioch. Notice there are two Antiochs. There's this one and this one. So sometimes we talk about Syrian Antioch, which is uh, really southern Turkey right around Syria today. Uh, or there's Pisidian Antioch, which is all the way over here. And Paul is walking from Perga, really hiking from here to here. Friends, this is the kind of terrain through the Taurus Mountains that he would be hiking. All right? Uh, This is the sort of thing that if you and I were going to do, uh, we would plan it for about 18 months from now and start training. Right? This isn't something you go, well, I think I'll go to, you know, Pisidian Antioch this afternoon. Not that kind of trip. And so the, the, the thought of many scholars is that Paul, by the time he got to this leg of the journey, which would be very, very difficult, is sick. Very sick. Uh, Because he's been down in Cyprus, there's a lot of water, there's a lot of mosquitoes. They think he might have been suffering from malaria, uh, perhaps bronchitis or pneumonia. And he's trying to hike up through these mountains to get to where the Lord is calling him to go. Not an easy trek at all. But one of the benefits of when he gets up here, it's a lot drier, a lot uh, thinner air. He's feeling better. He's feeling better, but he's got to move on through this mountain pass and on to Pisidian Antioch where the Lord is calling him. And so in Acts 13... Um, he goes on. So he goes from Perga, comes to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, Friday night to Saturday night, they went on to the synagogue and they sat down. And after reading of the law and the prophets, the officials of the synagogue sent the message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, give it. And that's all Paul needed. He stands up and with a gesture, he begins to speak, you Israelites and others who fear God, listen. Uh, The people that fear God are known as God-fears, well-named. So not everybody that would show up at the synagogue was Jewish. Most of them were. But there were also people who were interested in God, and they were allowed to overhear the conversation of the Scripture reading. He says, My brothers, he's speaking to them as a Jew, you descendants of Abraham's family, as he is, and others who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. Because the residents of Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize Jesus, that's the hymn that he's referring to there, or understand the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled those words by condemning him. Now, understand this. 
if somebody were to walk in here and, uh, you know, we read the scripture and, and I say, does anybody have a word, something they'd like to say? Uh, and somebody just, you know, from the congregation walks up and he says, yes, I do. You know, everything Mark's been teaching you for the last 17 years is wrong. And, and he's read it to you every week and you never got it. You didn't understand the scriptures, you dummies. Let me tell you. I know we haven't met yet, but, you know, just, just let me tell you how it is. How do you feel about that person? I don't like them. And they didn't like Paul. He basically says, everything you've known is wrong. Uh, you don't know me, I don't know you, but I'm about to teach you. I'm going to learn you some stuff. So even though they found no cause for a sentence of death, they asked Pilate to have Jesus killed. And when they had carried out everything that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. And Paul is recounting the basic story of salvation, of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for you and for me. And then he gets to the punchline, to the good stuff. He says, but God raised him from the dead. Will you say that with me? God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they are now his witnesses to the people. Now, not witnesses like I heard that I heard that I heard from somebody else that I heard. That's not a witness. These are eyewitness people. People who saw Jesus, more than 500 at one time, alive and well. And, and walking and breathing and teaching and talking for more than 40 days post-resurrection. These are witnesses, people that actually have seen Jesus alive, the disciples and other apostles like Paul who have had an experience with the risen Christ. And then Paul concludes each sermon like this. He goes from town to town, synagogue to synagogue, and he basically tells them, hey, everybody that's gathered, you're all wrong, and here's the news, and it's good news. He concludes each sermon like this. He says, let it be known, therefore, my brothers, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. By this Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from all those sins which you could not be free from the law of Moses. Now, friends, you understand that what he is saying is everything you have based your life on and your parents' life on and your grandparents' life on, that, that doesn't work. He basically boils it down. He's saying this. Your whole life by the law won't work. By Jesus alone, you are free. By Jesus, you are free. This is what he says. And, and, and the people then, they, some of them didn't believe it. Others hated him for it. And quite frankly, there's still people around here even today that don't really believe that. Like, hold, hold on a minute. I've been going to church my whole life. And, and, and I'm doing what Pastor Mark asked me to do or Pastor Andy taught me to do or my home church taught me to do. I'm like, look, I served in the three-year-old room for three years. I'm in. Right, seriously, I'm in. I don't have anything. I mean, and Paul's like, no, it's not about your works. It's about Jesus. And all these laws, and, and, and here's, here's the thing. They knew it in their bones. They're like, man, I do not like what this guy is saying, but that's right. I can't live the law. I can't do it. I try and I fail, and I try and I fail. I know these are all the things that I'm supposed to do. This is what it means to be a good person. This is what the law requires of me, and I try, but I can't do it. There was something in their bones. They knew what he was saying was true. It's true for us, too. We try to live the life that we're supposed to do. We, tr we try to make you know, the, the grades we're supposed to make or do the right things at work, and sometimes it just doesn't work. Jesus alone is our hope. And it's not until we surrender our lives, surrender, bend our knees and say, Jesus, help me, that we're truly free. The law only leads to sin and death, Paul will write later. And so this is, this is what he does. He goes where the Lord sends him, and it's a mixed response. There are people who get it and come to faith and are baptized and they celebrate that. There are others that oppose him and hate him and drive him out of town. 
And at the end of this journey, this Barnabas, who went to his home and called him out of his mom and dad's house to get him to where the Lord wanted him to be, he and Paul, they get in an argument, and they don't reconcile. And they go their other ways. These deepest of friends who have been together, imagine a guy that, or, or a, a gal that you had come so close to that you had walked from here to New York City. And at the end of that journey, you go, nope, not anymore. And you split. Now, we could spend a couple of Sundays working on uh, the split of Barnabas and Saul and what that's about. But notice that God is still at work. And Barnabas goes on to do wonderful work in other areas. Peter goes on and does wonderful work in other areas. And Paul is called to a new place, a new calling, and he chooses Silas. So the second missionary journey includes, say it with me, suffering. Now this is where it gets difficult, friends. Because we love, particularly in the American church, we love Proverbs, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do what the Lord asks you to do, and things go great. And that's true about 80% of the time right? Uh, You go to work, you do your work, uh, and you get a little bit of a raise, or you keep your nose clean, you do what you're supposed to do, life is good. That works, except for the 20% of the time it doesn't, right? So in high school, right, you go to school, uh, you do the paper, uh, you do what your teacher says, and you make an A, it works. And then you graduate, or you go to college, or you go right in the workforce, and you go to work, um, and you do your work, and at the end of the day, uh, you get fired because the price of oil is dropped in half. Is that real life in Oklahoma? Sure it is. Sure it is. What did you do wrong? Nothing. You did your job. You went to work. Or, or you're in a different field and you go to work and uh, you do what you're supposed to do and you're well qualified and you don't move up and nothing happens and your spouse gets cancer and they die. What'd you do wrong? Nothing. That's just the way the world is. And that's why Job sits right behind Proverbs. Because Job did everything right according to the scriptures. He was a, it was a perfect, blameless guy. And life just happened to him. Time after time after time after time. And that's why they sit together in our Old Testament like that. And Paul knew that was the case. And here's the thing. There is this misperception that if you do the law, it's all going to work out right for you. Not necessarily. Or that if you follow Jesus, everything's going to be great all the time. That won't include suffering. That's nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere, friends. It's just not there. So the thing is, this calling that God has on our life, you have a call, I have a call. At times, it will require suffering. Not always. Sometimes life can be really good. But some, here's the thing. Some people come to me like, you know, my life is a mess. I must not be in God's will. You might be exactly in God's will. You might absolutely be exactly in God's will right where you're supposed to be. I wonder what God can use to bring around salvation of the world. It might even include going to jail. It did for Paul. It did for Silas. It did for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. See, God can use all of it. All of it. So the scripture says Paul chose Silas. He and Barnabas are split now. And the believers commending him to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria, on up through Syria, Cilicia, and he was strengthening the churches there. And so he's gone all the way up here, all the way back, 
And now they're coming on up here, and they're going to go all the way to Neapolis and then on to Philippi. This is where the second missionary journey takes him with Silas. They go to the port city of Neapolis and then on to Philippi. And so he chooses Silas. And then we have this crazy story that happens. He's traveling um, up to Philippi, and this is, this is how the, Luke tells the story. He says, one day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. And while she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. Are they slaves of the Most High God? Yeah, that's true. Are they proclaiming a way of salvation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and she kept doing this for how long? Many days, many days. So, you know, what she was saying was not that big a deal. Yes, that's exactly what they were doing. Have you ever been on that family trip? This is like 100 bottles of beer on the wall. I mean, Paul just couldn't take it. Like day after day after day after day after day. Kept doing this for many days, right? So Paul is still Paul. He gets very much annoyed, short-tempered, and he turns to the Spirit, and he says, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it does. That very hour. But when her owner saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. You see, they didn't really mind Paul and Silas as long as they didn't bother them or change them in any way. But what got Paul in trouble was that he was messing with other people's what? Money. So for any of you who think about being pastors just commit this to memory, right? You start messing with people's money, people get angry. They get upset. So what happens next? Well, just what you thought. Uh, they took him to the magistrate. They, they took him to the authorities. Now, a magistrate, friends, is not Barney Fife. It's not Mayberry. These are Roman mercenaries, basically, people who are paid to oversee and occupy a force. These are bad dudes who are overseeing this area. Uh, and they take them to them and they say, these men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. And the whole crowd joins in and attacks them. And the magistrates stripped them of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. Not just beaten, but beaten with rods. And after they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Now, I want you to follow along with me. Paul and Silas have now traveled beyond New York City, beyond Los Angeles, and then some by foot and by rickety boat. When they get there, uh, they tell a spirit, uh, a fortune-telling, to, to leave them alone. Uh, they're thrown into jail. They're stripped naked in a town that they've never been to, and they begin being beaten with rods, and they begin to be flogged. Now, flogging looks like this. You might remember this from uh, around uh, Holy Week. Uh, Jesus was flogged before he went to the cross. Uh, you'll notice that the little uh, metal balls on the end are about the size of what you'd have in a musket. Uh, and they would tie those in there so that when it hit you, it would bruise you. Other flogs uh, would put fish hooks on the end to rip out your flesh. They knew that if they flogged you 39 times, you were most likely to live on the very edge of death. But if they hit you 40, 41, 42, certainly by 45, you would die. You'd simply bleed out. And, and, and so they would whip you 40 lashes minus one is how the Bible says it. They had it down to just a grotesque art. This is what Paul and Silas get for being faithful to the call of God. It includes suffering. They travel all that way. They're stripped. They're beaten. They're flogged. Thrown into prison. And following these instructions, uh, the jailer puts them in the innermost cell and fastens their feet in the stocks. Now, you can go to that uh, cell even today or a likeness of it. Um, it has 
St. Paul's name on it. And you'll notice that basically it's a dugout outcropping of stone uh, because all of that region is stone pretty much. Um, and they would place them in the innermost cell. And then they would simply put iron bars in front of the outcropping that they had dug out. They, they would then um, pound in uh, shackles uh, into the ground and, and put their feet in stocks. That's how they would uh, keep people in jail. And so that's what the world did to Paul and Silas. Now look what God does. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Have any of y'all been to jail? You've been to jail? I've been to jail. I mean, I was visiting congregants, of course. But I mean, I've been to jail. Been to jail. It's scary, isn't it, when you hear that... <clears throat> Behind you, we used to do a worship service uh, for incarcerated folks. Man, it creeped me out. Uh, it was just, you know, just you can't get out. And uh, there's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a thing. So when I'm, when I'm in jail and, and I've, I've traveled that far and I've been beaten, I've been naked in front of strangers, that's probably the worst part for me. Um, you know, just, it would just be so awful, wouldn't it? And you're on the edge of death. And, and what are you going to do in jail? You're going to sing hymns, right? Like, thank you, Jesus. This is going perfectly according to my plan. Thank you so much. And the other prisoners are listening, right? They're listening to these two folks singing praises to God. And how does God respond to that? Well, suddenly, there was something that we all know here in Oklahoma now, an earthquake. Y'all feel the earthquakes, right? You, you know what this is now, right? So... Violent. It was so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. Well, if you don't understand the way the prisons were built, that makes no sense to you. But now that you see it's an outcropping, they simply put the iron bars in front, an earthquake shifts the ground. What happens? They just fall down. It's not that they open, they're just like, boop, like you're free. The shackles have come out. I mean, whatever they pounded into the ground, earth moves, everybody's free. Everybody's free. Right? So all the doors were opened or fallen over. Everyone's chains were unfastened. And the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open. And he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Now why would he do that? It's easy for us to forget how bad the Roman Empire was. And he knew that what was going to happen to him next was way worse than death. They would flog him 39 times and hold him at the edge of death as an example to every other Roman soldier that would ever dare think of letting their prisoners escape. He was in for a life of torture, and he was very quick to ready to off himself because he knew that whatever Rome was going to do to him was going to be much worse because he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. And this is where it really gets amazing. Paul shouts out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself. We're all here. We're all here. We're all here. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm praying and singing hymns to God and the, you know, and the prison walls like fall over, I'm like, I think that's a sign. <laughs> right? I mean, that's what I'm thinking. It's not what Paul's thinking. Paul's like, I think I'll stay. We're fine. We'll just stay here. It's good. So I want to go into the next scripture. Uh, and it says, the jailer called for lights. He, he didn't know what was going on. And he rushes and he falls down trembling before Paul and Silas. He knows something bigger than any of them is going on. And then he brought them outside and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? See, the Lord had taken all of this for the salvation of this jailer and his family. And they answered, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. You see, what happens is God acts and Paul does what? He reacts to what God is doing. He sees God moving and he joins him there and he reacts for the salvation of someone else and his whole family. And so at that same hour of the night, this jailer, he takes them, Paul and Silas, and he washes their wounds. He treats them well now. He and his entire family were baptized without delay. 
That very night, he brought them to his home, and he brought them up into the house, and he sets food before them. He gives them a banquet, and he, he and his entire household rejoice that he had become a believer in God that night because of the suffering of Paul and Silas. It saves his entire household. And the scripture come, continues. It says, when morning came, the magistrate sent police saying, let those men go. Well, hold, hold on a minute. Like, like there's a page missing in this story. I thought they were already out. Weren't they at the jailer's house? Haven't they already had the banquet? Haven't everybody been baptized? This is the Disney ending. It's like they're like, la, 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 right? No, no, no. So you, so you see what happens. This is not in the text, but you, seeing this paragraph, you know it had to have happened. So after, you know, earthquake, singing songs, earthquake, they go, he stays, the jailer doesn't kill himself, the entire jailer's household is baptized, they have the huge banquet, and at the end of the night of the banquet, you know what Paul says? All right, friends, back to jail. Are you kidding me? Back to jail. That's what he says. So now let me ask you this. Is there anybody in your life, anybody in your life that you would go back to jail for? That you would say, you mean enough to me that I'm going to choose to go back to the place where I was stripped, beaten, flogged, near death. I'm going back. Because you're that important to me. That's what Paul and Silas choose for someone they had just met. The jailer who had authority over them. You see, he had to let those men go because they went back to jail. The jailer reported the message to Paul saying, the magistrates sent word to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. I want you to say this next part with me. After the celebration, it was what, friends? Back to jail. You see, when the Lord gets involved, everything changes. The world changes. But Paul replies, no, no, no. They've beaten us in public, uncondemned. Men who are Roman citizens, people didn't check on that. They're like, oh, no, we broke the law. We can't do that because you can't beat or flog a Roman citizen. Only non-Roman citizens. And, and thrown us into prison. And now they're going to try to discharge us in secret. No, 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 no. Nope. Let them come and take us out themselves. And so the police reported these words to the magistrate, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens because they knew they'd messed up. So they came and apologized to Paul and Silas. I wish I'd have been there. That would have been pretty good. You can just see Paul like, oh no, this needs to be a really good apology. Really, really good. And they took them out and they asked them to leave the city. Please leave, please, quick. And after leaving the prison, they went to Lydia's home. Now, Lydia's a place that they had stopped by earlier. And notice that, again, if it were me, I'm like, hey, I'm out. I'm gone. Not them. They stopped by the places that they had stopped by earlier to make sure everybody was okay. Checking on them before they left. And when they had seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters there, they departed. They departed after making sure that the work that God had called them to do was done. And they felt released, and they went on. So here's the thing, friends, that we have to understand. The Christian life does not shield us from suffering. At times, it requires it. It requires it. And I know that's not popular. I know that's not why you come to church. Like, ooh, yeah, I'm going to church so I can learn to suffer. It's not about my preaching. Don't do that. That's mean. Right? My pastor preaches over 30 minutes. It's killing me. That's not suffering. It may be annoying, but it's not suffering. It's not suffering. Will you read this with me? The Christian life does not shield us from suffering. At times, it requires it. So I want you to say this prayer with me. Lord, what are you calling me to? Where are you calling me? To whom are you calling? And even if it requires suffering, Lord, 
I'll do it. Because you were good. I trust in you. Use me for the salvation of your world. In Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know what came to mind for you. And it may be something as, as simple as, hey, you left the dog out when you came to church. Let him in. He needs to come in. That's okay. That can be a legitimate call if you're four. That might be, you know, perfect. Like, let him back in. That's, that's, a, good, that's a good call. That's a good call. But our calls can grow. Our calls are multiple. It's not that Paul had one call and that was it. Paul was called over and over and over and over again. And so were you. So am I. So are all of us. We have multiple calls on our lives to go. And it's true that for some Franciscan uh, monks or Benedictine monks or Augustinian monks, they are called to stay. Right? There are very few people in our population that are called to a monastic life to stay forever. To live in this home with the brothers forever. And there are people, that's true. That's a true calling for them. But for most of us, like Paul, it's a call to go. And it's a call to go and suffer. So that the Lord's will can be known. His love known to all the world. All the world. So, where, where's all this happening that we've been talking about? He travels all the way to where? Philippi. Right? If it's in Greek, they don't have a long I, so it's Philippi. But it just sounds funny, so we say Philippi. Um, but I want, I want to let you all know that um, when you read the Bible, just read it um, because it's translated into every language in the world and it sounds different depending on what language you're speaking. So don't worry about the pronunciation. Just kind of move on with it. It'll be fine. So we'll say Philippi. That's where it's all happening. So Paul writes a, a letter to the church in Philippi, doesn't he? It's called what? Philippians. And this is, this is one of those core verses uh, that you can commit to memory. It, it'll be awesome for your life. Um, I want to read it to you. It says, rejoice in the Lord how often? Always. Really? Always? Even in jail? Yep, always. And Paul can say that because he's lived it. It's not hyperbole for him. It's not a scenario for him. It's not theory for him. Rejoice in the Lord. Say it again with me. Always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to who? Everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about what? Anything. But in what? Everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Talk to God about everything. And if you do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, a peace that the world does not and cannot know without Christ, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what God promises. Paul has lived this out and found this to be true. So our action steps, friends, come right out of Philippians 4. It comes out of this incredible story that Paul has lived through, and that's how he writes this back to the church. And he's writing it to you and to me. So, same with me. Rejoice always. Do not worry about anything. And talk to God about everything. All right, so we're going to put them all together. Same with me. Rejoice always. Do not worry about anything. Talk to God about everything. That is your call today. Amen?